Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for listening to Toronto Today for a Friday uh, heading into the weekend. We talked to Ian Miller about a book called Unmasked, uh, which has to do with mask mandates, not necessarily the specifics of wearing one, but whether mandates have indeed worked in many U.S. states and whether we can apply any of that to what we're handling right now in Ontario. Uh, Ian's pretty blunt. They have not. And especially in a post-vaccination world, a lot of discussion about their usefulness in general, especially of the cloth variety. So we go there with him. And Bill Browder, a phenomenal, phenomenal resource, uh, was deep in into uh, the laws of Russian finances and economics while he lived there, uh, became a sworn enemy for life of President Vladimir Putin uh, to the point where Putin attempted uh, to take his life and ended up killing uh, Bill Browder's lawyer. So Bill Browder is on the show as well. Lots to listen to on the Toronto Today podcast. We thank you very much for finding us. And it begins now. Let me update you on uh, things in Russia, Ukraine. And it's more about the world's response than anything else. I mentioned before six o'clock, this is going to be a long and drawn out scenario with tanks rolling into Ukraine and airstrikes on the capital. Um, More than a dozen cities in a country of 40 million people have been hit and there's nowhere safe. My wife and I are watching the coverage last night. We really dove in and did, you know, being lazy and we didn't change the channel and we didn't, we didn't lighten the mood either. Uh, We didn't, we didn't look for a, like a wacky sitcom with a wackier neighbor. Always with the neighbor on uh, sitcoms sometimes. Um, but either way, one of those uh, situations where we're watching, and I am I just kind of blurt out loud, because um, that's how you blurt, is I say, what's the point of, like, I own a farm. I'm out in rural Ukraine, and you bomb my farm. What's the end game here? What are you trying to say? And there has to be just that element of psychological terror. There has to be that that you just want me to be rattled. You want to destroy property. You want to make a statement. You don't want to imprison me, I don't think. You don't want to convert me and all of a sudden put me in your army. I mean, everybody's seen every war movie imaginable, and there's every scenario um, imaginable that ends up happening because there's so many you know, diverse and different movies. But I'm a, I'm a, I'll do the hypothetical again. I'm a farmer. I own a farm. I own a lot of land. You want the land at a certain point in time? Why would you bomb my farm? Why would you uh, send a, a you know a, a, a missile right through my literally front window, my living room window? Why would you do that? What's the point? And clearly, it's to rattle me, it's to scare me, it's to frighten me, it's to psychologically submit me to your will. But that, how many videos did you see about that yesterday? And it's cold blooded and it's aggressive. And it's something that we've all, I think, looked at and said, I don't see uh, anybody else, China, okay, uh, supporting this across the entire uh, span of Europe. This isn't some dispute where you go, I see both sides of it. And I'm a little surprised that Putin is now condemned as, in essence, a pariah by leaders across the world. The people that know him, and we've got a phenomenal uh, interview coming up with Bill Browder at 8.30. We spoke to him before Christmas time. There's two things, I think, that are going to be really interesting about that chat later on in the morning. I don't know what you got going on, but if you can double back, if you can't stay for two straight hours and 20 minutes, come back at 8.30 and listen to Bill Browder because he's got the ties to, to Russia, worked there, lived there, uh, was an economic developer and financier there. But he also makes the point 
that Putin can't just run. He can't just go somewhere and say, I'm retired. I'm out of here. He, he's got too many enemies. So he needs to stay in power. He needs the protection. He needs the armed forces. He needs all that stuff. But that said, why not keep the car in neutral? Why choose this war? He's the aggressor. This is his choice. This isn't about what the Russian people want. It's not like we're sitting there um, in the in a post 9-11 haze. And I remember this uh, sitting in, in Michigan and talking to people, pr probably Canadians who in Canada, I'm a Canadian, but probably Canadians felt the same way. And they thought, yeah, we got to go get the people that did this. We do. We don't know to, to what extent and we don't know for how long we need to chase them down. But we need it. If you harbored people who committed uh, atrocities on 9-11, we got to go get them. That was it. like that just seemed not quite universal. Nothing is. But that seemed to be the majority of people in America said, yes, let's go into Afghanistan. Let's figure this out. Let's get Osama bin Laden. They did say that now at a certain point in time, they might have said, let's pull back. But we just thought we can't have another 9-11. We can't have another a day where this happens in, in terms of practical terms, and we can't have another day where we feel this way. None of that with this. There's zero of that with this particular scenario. Russians don't want this. Russian people know they're going to get squeezed tremendously uh, financially, okay? Uh, financial institutions are going to get sanctioned. Elites are getting sanctioned. Um, and what if... This is the fear, and I mentioned this two days ago before the bombing even started on the show. What if Putin's just lost it? What if he's unhinged? What if absolute power corrupts absolutely? What if he wants to reestablish the former Soviet Union or give it the old college try? Okay? The rest of the world's in a different place right now. It's in a very different place. And I thought there were a lot of world leaders that stepped up and were more aggressive with their language than I thought. But, that, but I, it's the minimum that should be expected. OK, condemnation is the minimum you need to sanction. You need to hit them hard. Uh, Emmanuel Macron has done that in France. Yes, Boris Johnson has done that. Um, he, he had a brilliant speech in uh, Great Britain's House of Commons saying Putin will never, ever be able to wipe the blood from his hands from this. And here's another thing. Does, and the New Yorker brought this up in an article I was reading last night. Does Putin qualify now as a war criminal? According to the Geneva Conventions of 1949, that includes willful killing, extensive destruction of property, quote, not justified by military necessity and carried out unlawfully and wantonly. Seems to fit the bill. I mean, look, many times people have said, well, he's a war criminal and she's a war criminal. There's people that want uh, Condoleezza Rice, George Bush, Dick Cheney all strung up on war criminal charges. OK, they never it never got to that point. This one might be a little bit different here. There's a clear violation of international law invading a sovereign country and trying to oust its government. And yeah, of course, the United States has been on that before. Of course, imperialism for countries like the U.S. and, and Great Britain at a certain point in time and the Soviet Union factored into uh, a great deal of political decisions throughout the 20th century. Very pleased to welcome in our next guest. Uh, he wrote a book about his uh, life in Russia called Red Notice, a true story of high finance murder and one man's fight for justice. Um, he knows this uh, this story uh, it, it, from, from the inside out. Uh, he is in the UK joining us right now. He is Bill Browder. Bill, it is great to have you back on here in Toronto. Thank you very much for making the time for us. Great to be here. 
Um, I'm going to read you really quick a sentence from the lead uh, lead of the New Yorker yesterday. In the eyes of the world and almost certainly history, Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine was an epic miscalculation drawing comparisons to Adolf Hitler and Saddam Hussein for cold-blooded aggression that could challenge the world order and change its borders. Some people hesitate to use that um, Hitler word, don't they, or the H word or whatever we want to call it, Bill. But that's I, I, that's a really pronounced sense. And that's not language we were using, whether we should have or not, for Vladimir Putin prior to the last few days. You know, I, I, I've been watching what's been going on every minute of every day in the last few months. And, and it reminds me of uh, 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 of what exactly is this the scenario of, of 1938. There's a a Netflix movie called um, uh, Munich: The Edge of War, mm -hmm. where they, where, where they, they're, where they, it's all about 1938 and the and British not wanting to get involved in a war and sending Neville Chamberlain to negotiate with Hitler and and it, it was exact. It's just the same thing, you know. Putin is that type of guy. He's he's completely um, ready to throw everybody under the bus um, for his own sort of ego and his own expansion. Desires and and um, and but for what it's worth, I don't think Ukraine is the end of his his military adventures. I think he's got a lot more appetite for more terrible things. That's what um, you you're, you know, Marcus Kolga really well, and he was on the show with us yesterday, and he made the point: if if the world doesn't stop him in Ukraine, um, there may not be any stopping him uh, through Eastern Europe. Is that an accurate statement? Very accurate. So. You know, he 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 wants to change the the world order. He wants to tear up the rule books. He wants to, you know, this all about, you know, the might makes right. You know, the the bigger you are, the more you can take. And um and you know he he the the big challenge and the big the the, the scary thing is that next he's going to go to Estonia or Lithuania, where which are members of NATO, and then he's going to see for himself whether. NATO really works, whether this Article 4, which says one for all and all for one, um, is real. Whether America and Canada are ready to go to war with Russia to save a country that most people haven't even heard of. And, and um, that's, you know, and, and he'd like to think that he's right, that, that they won't. And then if that's the case, then, you know, all bets are off. You know, at what point do, do at what point are we willing to go to war with him? Because, um, he, he he believes you know if we've if we pulled out of Afghanistan um, because we had three thousand troops there and let the country of thirty eight million people fall to the Taliban, why would we have any appetite to to fight with him? I was going to ask that. How long does this need to go before there's the concept of of boots on the ground for for you know for for to do more than just have NATO peacekeeping forces there to engage Western European countries into sending troops. North American countries like ourselves and the United States into sending troops. Um, the, the, he didn't just go in. This is not a picnic. This is not a, a little four or five day uh, military experiment. Uh, this is the real thing until he captures and, and for lack of a better term, annexes Ukraine. I mean, every world leader knows this. So what could the appetite be? And it can't just be among the politicians. Public has to embrace that also, doesn't it? Well, I mean, I think that we have to do everything possible to not find ourselves in that scenario. And so we have to take a lot of really um, unpleasant, um, you know, uh, economically unpleasant actions today to prevent, you know, military unpleasantness in the future. And, and it, nobody wants, you know, this wasn't a fight that any of us started, but he started it and he's going to continue this fight and we're, we have to fight back. 
And we have to fight back with every tool we have. And right now we don't want to put boots on the ground. We don't want to have any of our Western blood shedded. And so, and that means that we got to be absolutely tougher than we've ever been. We can ever even imagine being in terms of seizing all the assets that belong to the oligarchs that, that look after it for Putin to, to shut them off, to, to, to not, you know, to, to pay a higher energy price if we have to, not to buy Russian oil and gas. All these things are now required. Sacrifice is, is needed because if we, if we do some small sacrifices today, it'll be a lot better than losing lives mm. in the future when we have to go to war with this man. Bill, Bill Browder is joining us, of course, on Toronto Today on 640 Toronto. When I make that point at the beginning, that unless we we swallow hard, governments have to be willing to do it. The big oil companies have to be willing to do it. Can we target and prohibit the sale of their gas and oil? And is that the biggest economic punch we can strike? I mentioned, yeah, okay, so you're going to pull the Champions League out uh, final or an F1 race, but that's not that that's that's pennies on the dollar compared to if you hit their gas and oil industry. And well, more more than that is um, let's let's hit their assets in the West. I mean, these people commit terrible crimes, and they've done it for many many years, and they keep all their money in our countries. You know, in Toronto, your beautiful skyline of all those amazing skyscrapers. Some of them are owned by Russians. You know, yeah. and Russians, not just Russians, but Russians that are looking after Vladimir Putin's money, and so freeze them. <laughs> you know, that's the kind of stuff that gets his attention. And do we, that's the biggest question, right? Do we, do we have the appetite for it? I worry we live, my goodness, the world we live in right now with politics and social justice. I even think it's extended the pandemic. It's like, look how virtuous I am. Look how good, but you have to practically do things and doing things are a lot harder in the 21st century than saying things and projecting yourself out there. It takes the doing, doesn't it? It really, really does. And, and, um, you know, Canada, the United States, United Kingdom, Everyone has, has been big on, on empty rhetoric. Well, now we have to have full rhetoric. You know, we, we have to say, you know, we're going to go after Putin and his money. And we have to go after Putin and his money, not just play around and talk, talk tough. We've got to be tough. And that's the end. Um, you know, and, and for what it's worth, the sanctions list that was published yesterday by the uh, Canadian government is a good one. I give them credit for that. Um, but it doesn't include some, some pretty big names of Putin oligarchs, um, which who mm -hmm. should also be sanctioned. Do we look at China's involvement here and think China is is a bad actor here, that Russia and China, uh, Putin went to the Olympics? There seemed to be a, almost a handshake agreement not to start any, though the Paralympics are about to start, but there there seemed to be a handshake agreement not to do this over the course of the Beijing Winter Olympics. Are are they, in essence, partnering here? Well, the Chinese are, are absolutely um, partners. I mean, we're, the world is squaring off between the you know, the democratic free speech uh, rule of law countries and then the dictatorships and China, Russia, Iran, Venezuela are all part of the um, bad group. And, and they're all sort of um, lining up against us. It used to be you had the communist international. Now you've got the autocratic international. Do we, when we look at, at the at the larger picture here, um, and we go back, I mentioned earlier how for eight years of of uh, of George W. Bush, and yeah, for eight years of Barack Obama, there was, oh, how would I put it, a thawing in the relationship. It, it was almost a jovial relationship. Do you look back, and and you were front and center in a lot of those uh, sixteen years um, in Russia itself, but do you look and say? 
boy, we made some massive miscalculations. We let it fester and grow to this point where uh, Putin could do anything he wants whenever he wants. Do, do, do those two previous administrations hold some an element of accountability for what's happening right now? I don't think the Bush administration holds any accountability, but the Obama administration absolutely does. Um, they, they, if you remember, um, there was the Obama reset. He wanted to reset relations with Russia. Mm -hmm. And um, and I was trying to get sanctions placed on Russia after the murder of my lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky. And I had to fight Obama in Washington and and fight John Kerry, who is his um, uh, secretary of state, and fight all the, all these people who were... You know, there, there, I always joke that there was no, there's no Russian torture and murder lobby in Washington except other than the U.S. administration, who was like doing everything possible to like look the other way. And then, of course, Donald Trump was no better with all the, you know, Vladimir Putin. I don't think he's a killer kind of thing. Um, and so, you know, the, the Obama uh, administration and Trump, you know, really um, uh, and enabled uh, Putin to a great extent. Does it tell us as well that um, the disinformation and the interference in the 2016 presidential election? Look, I got all day for for some elements of of criticizing Hillary Clinton's campaign strategy. But does this very you know existence of what's happening right now, five and a half years after that particular election, tell us a lot of the reason why uh, Vladimir Putin didn't want Hillary Clinton to be president? She seemed to be taking a pretty hawkish approach toward Russia and Putin. Yeah, she she would have been much better than than Trump as far as Putin is concerned, um, and and I think Biden has been pretty good. I think he's handled this crisis as as well as one could handle it. Um, I mean, I I absolutely condemn him for what he did in Afghanistan, but but for mm -hmm. for this this crisis, I think it's been well handled. You know, they didn't he didn't let Putin run circles around him the way others have. You know, the, all their misinformation and their fake fake stuff and their you know responding to provocations. You know, he, he laid it all out every day, you know, you, you know, um, all the intelligence, put it out there. And so by, by the time we got to where we are here, the entire Western world is lined up against Putin. And, and uh, I think Putin has been taken by surprise on this thing. Yeah. In, in the last two days, maybe maybe he, it's a it's a more united front than he thought. Last thing for you, Bill Browder's uh, our awesome guest on 640 Toronto, Toronto Today. Let me ask you whether you think um, Ukrainians and Ukrainian men, you probably saw the story how 18 to 60 year old men are not allowed to leave the country. They are expected, in essence, to pick up arms and fight. They've got their local television telling people how to build Molotov cocktails um, in, in sort of a how to YouTube esque, uh, you know, element on on television. So uh, that's going to be the great debate, isn't it? When you and I talked about Afghanistan, um, we were talking in in the fall about how the, the Afghans just just laid down their arms after the Taliban came in. They're like, I don't want any part of this. Do you think Ukrainians stand and 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 fight to the bitter end here to defend their land or or will they will they see it as as too risky? Like giving up your life in, in uh, untenable circumstances is is not on the agenda for some of them. Well, I think there's going to be some of one and some of the other. I mean, what, what, we're, what we're seeing, uh, what we've seen over the last seven years is is that um the Russians were, you know, the Russians who vastly outgun and outman the um, the Ukrainians um, were able, never able to get much further than than a, a couple of, of small slivers of land in eastern Ukraine. Um, and and why is that? Because the Russians are not motivated. The Russian soldiers are not motivated. And the Ukrainians are defending their their land, their freedom, and their and their children. And so um, it's going to be ugly. No matter, I mean, you know, the Russians have every capacity to win, but but they're they're, they're not going to win. Um, 
uh, cost-free, there's going to be massive costs, massive death, really shocking situations for the Russian military. You've often said, and Marcus reiterated this yesterday, that there's only there's only one way Vladimir Putin can leave. To paraphrase you last time out, you, you kind of said this isn't somebody that can just pack his suitcase full of money and like a supervillain in a movie, uh, retire to a beach somewhere or a mountain. Someone will find him. So he's made too many enemies. He needs the protection of the state and the protection of the military. Do I do I have that as, as accurate as you described it last time? The only way he's going to leave the presidency um, is on a stretcher, either as an old age, old man, you know, who dies in his sleep or somebody who gets killed in an overthrow. He's not going to go down willingly and, 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 and in any circumstances. But but is that fear of assassination or repri- that that's almost Muammar Gaddafi getting pulled out of a hiding in a in a in a concrete tube? Is that is that the, the fate that that belies him once he leaves office and is a private citizen? Well, that, that, that's why he's never going to leave office as a private citizen. He'll stay in power until the until the last breath, uh, his last breath. That's his strategy. That's his objective. Bill Browder joining us from uh, London in the United Kingdom. It's a great pleasure to have you on, sir. Thank you very much for your time and your insight on this. Thank you. Have a good day. All right. Lots uh, to recap on that. If you missed some of that chat, wow. Uh, we'll put it on the podcast about an hour from now on Apple Podcasts. Uh, things we're not talking about to wrap the week. That's a lot of adrenaline flowing after uh, chatting with Bill, who, uh, yeah, his lawyer was murdered by Vladimir Putin. Uh, he had a price put on his head by Vladimir Putin, lives safely now in London. But um, y- y- you never quite forget uh, moments like uh, like his existence in Russia. His book, Red Notice, by the way, is amazing. And that's a great guest to uh, weigh in to end the week on that insight. Great credit to Shiva Siddiqui for uh, grabbing him. I want to spend a few minutes here with the president of the Canadian-Ukrainian National Federation. He is Yuri Klufus and uh, takes the time to join us right now. Yuri, thank you very much for uh, for making the time for our audience uh, on, on, I know, uh, a difficult and uh, and heart-wrenching few days, and, and they will probably continue. How How is your frame of mind right now, sir? Uh, we were all very, very concerned, very much concerned about what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, the, the, most, the most important thing that, uh, that, that we kind of were thinking that we've got, we're dealing with a very uh, sick but powerful man. Uh, Hitler, Stalin, uh, they were able to manage uh, the whole world there for a while. So uh, we've got the same thing. You know, we've got Mr. Putin, uh, a Nazi KGB, uh, I don't know, dictator um, who's living in the wrong century and is trying to revive uh, the wrong uh, the wrong empire. I wonder if you've noticed, as I have, though, a. Um a strengthening and a real resolve in the world community. There aren't two sides to this particular issue. You've got Russians demonstrating en masse in that country. And I saw them in Vladimir Putin's hometown last night. And though th- there's just too many numbers for uh, police to drag all of them away uh, and arrest them. But this isn't a, um, you know, th- this isn't a, a coup in an African country or heaven forbid Middle East politics where you get 20 people in a room and no one person will think the exact same thing about all the circumstances. The world community seems very united in that this is wrong. This is illegal. This is dangerous. And they, and they want their own governments to do something about it. It's a very united front here. Well, this is uh, this is very interesting that you bring that up. Uh, because there are there are some some people uh, uh, people from the Russian community, uh, like for example from the military, uh, that are saying that the military doesn't really want to fight here. Right. Uh, 
Uh, and, uh, you know, and we have uh, boys, uh, you know, sent across the border into Ukraine that gave up there in that area of Chernivtsi. Uh, and they said, you know, we were sent here to, you know, to just come here and observe. We didn't know we were supposed to kill people. So uh, I think there's, you know, they're, they're, on one hand, they're not getting the right information or the right instructions or not necessarily not given the right ones. They're being misled so that they actually go out there. So they're cannon fodder for the other people. But uh, the Russian people really, really suffered and really, really protested against what happened in Afghanistan after they realized that their that their their children were coming home in uh, in uh, in coffins. And you're saying throughout the '80s they did that in the, in the right. former Soviet that, Union. That's right. That's right. Right. So right. so so now this is you know this is the unfortunate thing. There's people on both sides of the border that that are. You know how how can I say it that are that are being enslaved or that are being maligned by this Putin guy? I, I want to get to, I want to get to the practicality of of what your organization is able to do. I think it's a curious question. Um, wind the clocks back. How did Canada end up with so many uh, people of Ukrainian heritage? I saw a story on the news last night that Winnipeg has a massive massive Ukrainian population. So there's more Ukrainians in Canada than every other country in the world, except Ukraine. That's incredible. And, and except Russia. Right, except Russia, obviously. Yes, yes, third yes, in, on, yes. on the globe, yeah. Yes, yes. So uh, Ukrainians wound up here in in quite a few waves. Uh, it all started uh, under the Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, where there was opportunity, and Canada was actually looking for, uh, for immigrants uh, to build the West. Uh, the big wasteland out there. Nobody saw what could be done. So, so our people were were coming in. They were brought here in in boats, uh, then and then on the train ride across Canada, and then told, okay, uh, you know, there's there's Edmonton up there somewhere, or maybe even there wasn't an Edmonton, but they were told, okay, now you go uh, travel uh, by foot, you know, 100 miles there, 400 miles across. And what you find and what you can, can uh, if you can train the land, so to speak, cultivate the land, then it's yours. So, uh, so that's how it all started. But uh, the, huge, the huge amount of people came in after the Second World War, uh, escaping as the Red Army was moving uh, westward. So those people knew that they were co- coming across uh, the intelligentsia and uh, those that could make it. Uh, had to escape. Otherwise, they would be, as opposed to being in Canada, they would have been in Siberia. Yeah. Um, Yuri Klufus is our guest, president of the Canadian-Ukrainian National Federation. I got about 90 seconds, but I want to give you all that time. What are the big concerns? I mean, the obvious concerns are life and death, but the big concerns with Canadians of Ukrainian heritage, Ukrainian nationals maybe living in Canada, being able to stay in contact with relatives, loved ones, how are they able to do this so far? And do you worry greatly about the lines of, of communication being lost here as the days go on? Well, I, I, I don't think we're, we're there yet about losing lines of communication. Thank God uh, uh, we, have, uh, we have the Internet and we have, uh, uh, you know, we have, have telephones and, and a lot of people out in Ukraine are, mm-hmm. really know how to work that. But we know uh, Russia with its cyber uh, capabilities, that could all close down very, very quickly. 
and uh, and that's uh, that's why we're we're seeing an exodus of people, uh, and that's why we see people being concerned on both sides of the border about what's going to happen, and and the, we're fighting an inhumane regime, so if, you know it may sound kind of weird, but that people during the Second World War would prefer to be captured by the Germans than to be captured by the Russians, because the Germans honored regardless of 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 unfortunate things in relation to their part of their people being Nazis and run by Nazis, they still understood the concept uh, of, of laws that related to wars, unfortunately. Uh, and fortunately for us, uh, it, it was more pleasant to be in jail uh, Russia with... Uh, I gotcha. Yeah, you know? yeah. It's That's that's the part that's going to be really, um, again, I don't want to say intriguing like anyone looks forward to it, but I think... That's the important part to watch is is what happens if there are indeed prisoners of war here on either side. We've already seen Russian uh, Russian military members captured by Ukrainian forces as well and being held and they've been on video. Um, Yuri, let's stay in touch on this uh, next week. Uh, once we're back on uh, on the air doing shows, uh, I think you'll be a re- valuable resource and, and you're able to get messaging out to Ukrainians listening to the show as well. And, and I appreciate you taking the time today. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And a real, real big thanks for raising this issue and uh, bringing yeah. it to our people here in Canada. We live in beautiful oblivion here and sometimes don't know that other people are suffering. No, we do. We do. We've got, we, hey, we've got our own problems, our own issues and our own conversations, but uh, we're all, all, all eyes and, and everything we can possibly do uh, to get to get information out and make a difference. We're happy to do. That's what we do here. Yuri Klufus, our guest, uh, president of the Canadian Ukrainian National Federation. Let's uh, our next guest, he wrote a book called Unmasked, The Global Failure of COVID Mask Mandates. Doesn't think they've worked. Didn't think they mattered. And we want to dig into why he does that way. And uh, I've read this. It's a very clear, very concise. You don't have to agree, but these are important conversations to have. He is author Ian Miller. It's great to have you getting up early from California uh, to do this for us. You hear that clip that I play right there, and we're starting to have a shift in this conversation, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it's it's been good to see that there has been more willingness to engage in these conversations. Um, you know, the Washington Post recently posted a, an article saying you know, mass mandates never worked, which was a little validating to hear uh, on my end, because obviously I've been doing this work for so long and wrote the book about it. Um, but it, it is it is encouraging to see. I think more people are being willing to are willing to, to look at the data and examine it. Um, Early on, I think there was a lot of panic and, and unknowns and fear about all of this. And, and, you know, the World Health Organization was saying 3% of people that got it might die. And that's mm-hmm. that's uh, un- understandably scary. So people, I think, were willing to just kind of go along with with any policy, no matter what. And now as we get further away and, and removed from that, and, and obviously the vaccines have, have limited the risk for a lot of people. So it's 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 encouraging that people are more willing to see well go, go back and look and say what were the the benefits of these policies if anything and what were the harms of these policies as well. So if I go back to my thought, um, I think I was driving. This is what we used to do, right? My my parents are in their seventies; they live about two and a half hours from me. I said, "Do you want me to come out and bring you groceries?" Like they were barracking in, and this may be like early April um, of twenty twenty. So I remember driving, stopping along the way, and I put like kind of a bandana around my mouth and nose. And I thought, okay, this is empowering. This makes sense. Small town. I was the only one doing it. But I got to the car and I felt a little bit empowered by it. And I think we went through that spring and summer. We wanted, I know here in Ontario, our listeners will know this. So we didn't get a provincial mask mandate in Ontario, but many of the mayors said, 
I'm installing one. I'm installing one. This this makes this creates more confidence. People can feel more safe. And I understood all of that. I really did. And then it felt like, you know, a year later, once we got vaccinated, and that was about a year right after that, maybe April of 21, I got my first vaccination. And then when you get your second a few months later, you're like, what am I doing with this thing on my face? Um, 14 hours, you know, wherever I go in public for you, for other people, you know, was, was that the sort of evolution or did you have a lot of hesitancy, a lot of suspicion about its effectiveness even before that? Well, living in California, we had mass mandates very, very early, uh, April of 2020, LA put in a mass mandate, for example, and uh, the numbers went up anyway, the numbers went up immediately, just a couple of months later to, you know, broke pre- all the previous records at that point. So I started to look at it pretty closely at that point, because I, you know, I was saying, well, look, I thought this, uh, everybody's wearing a mask, we have the mandate that should have prevented this big surge from happening at that point. Um, Obviously, you know, the vaccines totally changed the game in terms of what we could expect going forward. But at the time, even in summer 2020, I was looking at the data going, this should have been having, this should have had a a more significant impact. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you could compare areas that had mass mandates and those that didn't. And there wasn't a difference. And in some cases, the areas without the mandates were doing better. So I started to get pretty skeptical at that point about how, how effective these actually were at limiting transmission, especially when used by the general population. Obviously, there's been a lot of inconsistencies as far as politicians, especially in the United States, complying with their own mandates where you can kind of say, well, if they're not taking this that seriously, then maybe I should be either. Uh, Or if they don't think the rules are that important to follow, then maybe I shouldn't be thinking that they're important to follow for me as well. So, yeah, there's a lot of there's been a lot of these inconsistencies throughout the pandemic that I think have, have decreased trust in these measures over time. I'll get to the mandates in a little bit, but yeah, you, you document something I think a lot of people looked at. We thought, okay, there's seven or eight politicians or public figures in a room. The one that speaks takes the mask off. The other seven keep them on. If if we're really talking and, and you know, if we can have a conversation about COVID being an airborne virus and yet at the same time, droplets would be a way it'd be more likely for them to spread the person speaking is probably the one that should keep the mask on. And And some of that just didn't start to level up with a lot of us. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think that that aerosols definitely are probably the most dominant form of transmission at this point. And, and that, like, like you say, anybody speaking in the room, uh, those aerosols are just going to get up in the air. You know, they don't fall to the ground within six feet. So like that was the droplet idea. Uh, so when they're up in the air, anybody speaking is going to potentially spread it to somebody in the room who's susceptible. Um, and I do I point this out in the book that early on, uh, you know, the, all the research had said that this wasn't likely, masks weren't likely to stop aerosol transmission, the United Kingdom's uh, kind of equivalent of the CDC had said that air, masks don't stop aerosols. And obviously masks did change in, in the years mm-hmm. after this research was done. Uh, so yeah, it, it, it was a, a pretty kind of a confusing thing to have somebody that's speaking, which would be at the most high, the highest risk of transmission who takes their mask off. But again, it goes, it goes back to that inconsistency aspect of a lot of these rules. So when you started, was was the genesis of the book to basically compare state by state, take a look at state beside state, whether it's geographical, look at the same period of time and say, this is regardless of whether the mask is, you know, a smart thing, maybe, maybe for, um, you know, an 80 year old to wear compared to a 10 year old. OK, like that's that's a conversation also. But the pure concept of the mandate, you got to wear it here. You can't have it off there. Is that where the book started comparing states that had them versus states that didn't and not seeing a discernible difference? Yeah, that was a major part of it. I think the gun, the goal was to show, okay, so here's the, you know, here's what all the research said pre-COVID about what masks would do in the general population. And then afterwards, 
here are the expectations. Once all of these global health organizations started to say everybody should wear a mask, here were the expectations that a lot of these kind of you know experts laid out as far as what we could expect from from people wearing masks. And then here were the results afterwards. And like you say, you compare these states that are next door. I you know compare Oregon and Washington and Idaho and Montana and uh, California and Arizona, New York, New Jersey, that kind of thing. And the results are nearly identical regardless of when they had their mask policies. Uh, and it's also to show that you can you can look and see, well, the mandate comes in and then a couple of weeks later, a couple of months later, the numbers have, have skyrocketed and broken mm-hmm. every record regardless. And same thing with when removing mask mandates. You know, Texas removed their mask mandate in March of 2021 and the numbers plummeted afterwards, despite all of this huge outcry from politicians and media members and, and experts saying that it was going to be a disaster. So yeah, it was to kind of show that transition from here's what it said pre-COVID, here were the, the expectations, and here were the results. Ian Miller is our guest on Toronto Today on 640 Toronto. His book, Unmasked, The Global Failure of COVID Mask Mandates. I'll tell you a funny quick story about Texas. Um, the Blue Jays, uh, the Major League Baseball team here, started their season in Arlington, and it was going to be – remember, the Blue Jays didn't come back here till July. It's just not safe enough. So they had to play in Dunedin, Florida, and then Buffalo, New York, where their AAA team is. So they play down in Arlington. Full stadium, nah, masks, they're not terribly compliant about it. Some people were wearing them, and, and that's that's a choice. But you should the, the coverage that got super spreader event, or all the players gonna be okay, or the managers should the blues just forfeit the games and move on. And we watch that in Texas and in Florida. And I can make the case that maybe those those states were too cavalier about some policy in 2020. I got all day for that, but that told I think a lot of people right there in April of 2021 that um, whatever you believe about the science, about about outdoor air, about wearing masks outside, like chuck a lot of that out the window because we saw a pretty successful start to the spring in open states. We saw an entire college football season and an NFL season in 2021. Same story. Yeah, absolutely. It was, uh, I, I think that's one of the, the uh, kind of helped spur along the end of a lot of these restrictions was was seeing that all these states opened up and didn't have these major spikes that everybody was expecting. And it also goes to show you that a lot of people have said, "Oh, we're you know we're following the science," and then somebody else said, "Well, we're following the science," and, and but somehow the science can can lead to these vastly different policies. Um, so it's very uh, it's been very frustrating to see how little coverage a lot of these these uh, they don't there's no updates you know they'll make these mm-hmm. predictions of doom but then when it doesn't happen they don't go back and say you know we got this one wrong and here's why and they just kind of move forward to making the next prediction um so yeah i, I hope that that's what the book does as well and i point out the same thing with the super bowl in florida when everybody was saying mm-hmm. the super bowl is going to be a huge super starter event in 2021 and and that didn't happen so yeah there's a lot of examples of this and i cover those some of those in the book I understand even the the concept of the vaccination being um, politicized to some extent. I think we all had an expectation it would, and especially in the last few months of the Trump presidency, I, I'm I'm borderline shocked. And fo- and it's happened up here in Canada too, where I haven't seen it terribly is all throughout Western Europe, uh, where they have democracies. Also, they have some left leading socialist governments. They have some right leading governments. It, the mass just is not like that. It is not a conversation point. Um, you've spotted that here. Is there and and there's boy, there's people that are adamant who um, they've they've never voted Republican. They would never have voted for Donald Trump, and they're they've become many of the moms, especially of young kids, have be, they say they've become one issue voters over this. It's like get it off my kid, let him or her have a normal school existence after 24 months, and you got my vote. 
Yeah, uh, masking kids has been one of the the most controversial things here, and a lot. It's also controversial because a lot of, of of areas don't do this. A lot of countries in Europe never mask their kids in schools, especially young kids. Uh, even the World Health Organization doesn't recommend it for anyone under six. There's this in, again, this inconsistency where people are not following their own rules, and we're seeing people are walking around unmasked in most areas of life, but in schools they're still forcing kids to wear masks, and uh, without a lot of of evidence or data to back up why it's so necessary in that specific setting. And I think, you know, we can point to the teachers unions, especially in the United States, uh, for why that's continued. And, and people, parents are very frustrated with that. And they're ready for it to be over. And there are demonstrable harms to masking kids that young for, for this long. This, you know, kids are five, six years old, 20, 30% of their life has been spent with a mask on. Um, so yeah, I think a lot of people are, are kind of hoping that that's the last hurdle to get through here is to, is to remove masks in schools. How much, last thing for you, how much did it turn, uh, Dr. Leona Wen made mention of it, called them facial decorations before Christmas. I thought that turned the conversation. It shouldn't have taken that. It shouldn't have taken that and that alone. And that's, that's say, before your book gets published. And that's before a lot more prominent uh, pediatricians and doctors, um, you know, were out there advocating, saying, you know what, we may have overreacted with some of the safeguards here. Once we realized kids were the least susceptible demographic, especially, um, we could have we could have eased up. And, and I say to my kids, I'm like, I can't, you know, I'm excited for you guys to do normal things, to be going on field trips and have a school dance and all that stuff. I got a 16 year old and a 13 year old. But I say what I never want to see, hear about is you making fun of somebody else wearing it or point it like those are really, really important standards. I think a lot of parents have. But I, I thought the Leona Wen thing was a real turning point for parents of school kids. Yeah, well, especially you hear for so long, and kids have been making these sacrifices, and people have, as far as, as masking and other other interventions. And then to hear somebody that has that platform come out and say, "Oh, it's been theater kind of this whole time," um, I think that that definitely is has changed the conversation a bit. Uh, I, I it should never have taken this long to get to that point, but um, you know, and, and again, I you can go through and compare. I recently did this where I had I compare all the states that had forced masking in schools and those that didn't, and the case rates were worse in the states that had forced masking in schools. Um, so she's right; <laughs> they have been facial decorations in a lot of ways, and that's basically what the evidence pre-COVID would have suggested. So uh, I think that there's hopefully the goal here is to make sure that we don't make these mistakes going forward and, and allow for choice. If somebody wants to wear mask, totally fine, but it has to be a kind of a personal, individual decision. At this point, because if, if they are facial decorations, you're not providing societal benefit. Do I let me follow up on that? Do I have that? Do I have some of the social media aspect of this right? And this just this hit us all at the wrong time. This pandemic needed to happen in in 1986, not 2022, where it's like if you do something that is you know thoughtful or seemingly thoughtful or caring or benevolent, if you don't broadcast it out, it's almost like it's not happening. And <laughs> that's not how, yeah. you know, that's not how a lot of us so-called human beings roll, but a lot of people on social media certainly do. It constantly gets referred to as virtue signaling. And that gets kind of that phrase itself gets kind of hijacked politically. But everybody, you know, everybody on there feels the need to let you know what a great person they are. And somehow the mask became a device for that. That's how I viewed it anyway. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that it, it, his, it was completely unique, the situation. This would never have happened pre pre-2020, 2021, where we had the ability to communicate instantly with basically everybody across the world. And it became this, this way of, of showing that you were, that you cared about others and that you're a kind person, that you want to be doing the right thing. And that's a powerful instinct for people, understandably so. It's just that unfortunately masks didn't provide that. They weren't actually doing much to help society. And, and, and otherwise the numbers wouldn't be this bad. And uh, I think that there's, there's a, 
an aspect of this that's that's socially that is really uh, allowed for this to happen. I don't think you know. There's been pandemics in the 1950s and 1960s. Obviously, they didn't have social media, and I think the re- the the reactions were very different. It's also if you go back and look at pre-pandemic planning guidance from the World Health Organization and other organizations, they all said that the best way to handle pandemics is to to have as minimized disruptions to normal life. We did the exact opposite. We disrupted everything. So I think there was a lot of panic that helped spread via social media that led to these governments kind of giving into that fear and throwing away all of their carefully carefully planned documents saying that we shouldn't disrupt people and and uh, and wear masks and all these other interventions. So yeah, it definitely contributed a lot to this to the entire policy of the pandemic. The book's an important one. The opinions in there are those of Ian Miller. The book's called Unmasked, The Global Failure of COVID Mask Mandates. Thanks for making time for us uh, north of the border. Uh, it's an important issue here as well. And and we're talking about it a lot more, having honest conversations about it. And, and I appreciate you coming on and uh, contributing to that. Thanks so much. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks very much for listening to the Toronto Today podcast. We'll have a fresh live show Monday morning as we try and uh, push February into the rearview mirror. Uh, there will be a day left. That's February 28th. Thank goodness it's not a leap year. We'll take it. Have yourself a great weekend. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you Monday morning on 640 Toronto.